we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Welcome to our podcast episode, What is EB1 Immigration and How to Prepare an EB1 Petition? My name is Anu Nair. I'm a partner here at Classco, and I am joined by Ali Dempsey, who is our senior associate, and Nigel James, who's an associate on the EB1 team as well. So let's get started. Um, Ali, I'm going to turn to you. Can you take us through a brief overview of what is this EB1 visa? Who can apply for the EB1 visa? Sure, thank you so much, Anu. Generally, um, in EB-1 immigration, there are three broad categories that we look at. Um, There's an EB-1A, which is for individuals of extraordinary ability. There is an EB-1B, which is for outstanding researchers and professors. Um, And also an EB-1C, which is for certain multinational managers and executives of international corporations. Today, we're gonna focus largely on the EB-1A category um, and talk a lot about what the pros and cons of that category look like um, and how you can prepare yourself to qualify under that extraordinary ability standard. The clearest fit for an EB-1A is largely going to be academics and scientists because of the way the regulations are structured. But the EB-1A is by no means limited to scientific individuals. Um, It's very commonly used as well for individuals in the arts um, as well as in business and can generally apply to anybody in any field who can show that they're one of a small handful who's at the very top of the field and that they've sustained some level of acclaim. The regulations are actually structured to allow for consideration of comparable evidence, which is a really broad bucket that allows individuals from a multitude of fields to consider this immigration option. So, Nigel, does someone have to have an employer ready and a job opportunity in hand in order to be able to apply for the EB-1? So for the EB-1A Extraordinary Ability Petition, you don't need to have an employer sponsor you and you can file a petition on your own behalf. However, for the EB-1B Outstanding Researcher or Professor, you do need an employer to sponsor you. Additionally, for this category, your employer has to be sponsoring you for a position that's tenure track uh, for teaching or a permanent full-time research position. Additionally, your employer also must document they have at least three full-time researchers. So one of the benefits you mentioned right now is that it doesn't you don't need to have an employer that's sponsoring you, which can be especially for the EB1A, which can be really helpful to a lot of foreign nationals who are either overseas and don't have an immediate employer or are still looking to pursue that opportunity. What are some other benefits for EB1 where someone may want to choose that over the more common categories we see for EB2, EB3, PERM-based immigration options? So the largest benefit of the EB1A um, is that it generally doesn't have a backlog under the visa bulletin, which governs how um, U.S. green cards are allocated by the U.S. government. There can be um, some delays in EB1 migration for certain nationalities that have high rates of migration to the U.S., 
So sometimes historically we have seen backlogs in EB1 um, for Indian and Chinese nationals, for instance. But even if there is a backlog, the EB1 is typically much faster um, to get a green card in hand when compared to the other preference categories. Um, going back to what Nigel was saying, the ability to self-sponsor the EB1A is also a tremendous benefit because it allows for significant flexibility um, in your employment decisions while you're pursuing the green card. The one big consideration that we always emphasize, though, is that even if you want that flexibility, you still need to have some plan to continue in your field of extraordinary ability. Um, so while there is flexibility in the EB1A, it's not limitless always. So we've gone through what the EB1 visa is, who can sponsor you, whether you can self-sponsor, and why it's um, beneficial or why a lot of people prefer choosing this option over some of the other categories that are available. So Nigel, I'm going to turn to you to take us through the criteria for actually applying for these petitions. Sure, so one part of the EB1 analysis is determining whether you meet at least three out of 10 regulatory criteria. So for the criteria, it largely depends on your field, and I'll go through the common ones depending on your field now. So for doctors, researchers, and professors, the most common uh, criteria that we see individuals meeting are going for are going to be originally scholarly uh, contributions based on your research, um, authorship of scholarly articles, and also judge of the work of others in your field, which is primarily based on things such as peer review. However, for artists and performers, um, we see things such as original artistic contributions to their field, performance of a leading or critical role for a distinguished organization in the arts, um, and then also commercial success in the arts. So this is things such as um, ticket sales and things of that nature. Lastly, for business professionals, we usually see these individuals go for original business contributions, um, commanding a high salary or remuneration compared to others in the field, which takes into account your annual salary, your bonus, relocation benefits, etc. And lastly, performance of a leading or critical role for uh, your distinguished organization. So for the second part of the analysis, USCIS conducts uh, a final merits determination. So after reviewing and confirming that you satisfy at least three out of 10 regulatory criteria, this final merits determination, it's for USCIS to review the submitted evidence in its totality to determine that you are a part of you know, the top percentage of individuals of your field, as Ali mentioned, and that you have continued to sustain national or international claim in your field. So this puts a lot of emphasis on the quality of the evidence, which is more important than the quantity. So I know I only spoke about three common criteria for each field, but the list of other criteria is going to be included in the show notes for this reporting. Now that we've gone through the common criteria, um, what can an applicant do to increase their chances of approval? There are likely a myriad of ways that you can improve the overall strength of your case, depending on the nature of your field and your own specific career. However, I'm going to quickly highlight three areas where we commonly see room for improvement. The first is just to increase um, your professional engagement with your field, whatever the case may be. So that can be academic service, it can be participating in business organizations or artistic groups. Um, again, kind of whatever the nature of your field is, putting yourself out there and really building um, a reputation um, and standing within a professional group. 
We do recommend that you be specific and targeted when developing this part of your profile, not joining every organization that you can possibly join, but really choosing a few and working to develop your standing and your achievements within those specific entities. The next thing that we always encourage is to publish and present more. Um, and again, this is not limited to academic type profiles. Um, publishing and presenting can be in industry or trade venues as well as in academic journals, um, but generally getting yourself out there. Um, and these are also really good venues for developing documentation in support of an EB1. So we always wanna be mindful of having the paper behind the achievements to really demonstrate to immigration what you've done in your field. As Nigel said, for both of these areas of improvement, we are looking at the quality of what you're doing, not just the quantity. Um, so again, not joining every single group, but really focusing on where you can build your profile. Finally, one of the most common issues we see um, is individuals who have done wonderful work in their field, but simply don't have the documentation to substantiate those achievements. So we always want to encourage clients um, and encourage individuals to build up the documentation in support of their work, save records, keep them with you as you move from job to job, emails and other documentation that supports everything that you've done. So when we need to show immigration your work, uh, we have the means to do so. Thank you, Ali. And we actually dedicated a full webinar to increasing the chances of um, your EB1 approval. So I do recommend that if you're interested in EB1 and you're looking at those options to check out that webinar. We'll also include a link to that as well. Um, so finally, you know, if a client is saying, yes, it looks like I am ready to go, Nigel, how would they go through that process in getting their petition or application filed? What does that look like? So first, the gathering of the documentation is largely going to depend on the client. So the documents that you want to gather, as Ali mentioned, are going to be in support of the specific criteria you're going for, such as peer review for um, judge of the work of others, you know, scholarly publications, the PDF copies, things of that nature, which will largely depend on the client gathering those materials for the attorney. Second part, your attorney will help you compile the support letters for your petition, as well as the cover letter explaining to the adjudicator how you meet the legal requirements for the EB1A category. So for example, here at Clasco, we have a specialized team of attorneys and a team of technical writers to help guide you through that process. So for each case, there's one dedicated attorney and one dedicated technical writer. So the technical writers are critical in taking the highly technical information and explaining it to a layperson. And this is important because the USAS adjudicator won't be an expert in the field, and so they'll need to have the material explained to them in a way where they can pick it up and immediately explain it while reading the petition. Additionally, one way to decrease the chances of any particular issues with the EB1 after filing would be using premium processing strategically. So I know Anio and Ali have some thoughts about premium processing on how to use that to maximize the chances of success. Um, so one of the things that you can do is use it to work for any particular expiring status concerns or age outs for children who are turning 21. Um, any additional thoughts on you or Ali? Yeah, I was going to say unless there's really high chance of success and unless there's an age out or um, status issues, I generally don't like to use premium processing and I like to use it strategically because if there's a request for evidence 
at that stage, we can decide if that request for evidence was reasonable. If it wasn't, we can use the premium processing to potentially get that case in front of another adjudicator and therefore have two officers basically having taken a look at it and maybe having the second officer have a more positive factor. So that's how I like to use premium processing. But again, for certain circumstances, I think it makes sense to do premium processing, but it is something that should be an ongoing discussion um, with the attorney as you're putting together the documentation. I don't like making that assessment at the outset, which is when the clients want to know. I usually only make that assessment once everything is put together and I can see what that full petition looks like and then use it strategically. So with premium processing, you can get the adjudicator to review the petition within 15 or 30 calendar days, depending on the category. For the EB1A category, it would be 15 calendar days, which includes weekends and holidays. Ali, did you have any additional thoughts on premium processing? The other big thing that we always want to be mindful of when we're preparing these types of filings is just the volume of documentation that we're submitting to immigration. So if you're submitting, you know, a thousand pages of evidence to immigration, but simultaneously asking that officer to review it in 15 days, we always have to account and counsel the client on what we're asking the immigration officer to achieve in a very limited window. Um, so that's another reason we often counsel against the premium processing unless there is an immigration need because we are really putting the immigration officer under the gun to make a decision on a voluminous filing in a very short period of time. And at the end of the day, you want the immigration officer to be friendly to your case. Um, and that's really important throughout the process. So what if a client, you've explained the criteria to the client, what the requirements are, and they realize that EB1 just may not be a good fit for them. They just simply don't meet that criteria. Are there any other option for them than going through the PERM process? Yeah, so the most common fallback to the EB1A um, is an EB2 national interest waiver. Similar to the EB1A, the NIW, as it's known, um, can be self-sponsored. So it has a lot of the same flexibilities as an EB1A, but at a slightly different level in terms of the final adjudication. Because it's a lower preference category, it's the EB2, not an EB1, um, there are some challenges for certain nationalities. So individuals who are from India and China will face significant backlogs in EB2 as compared to EB1. Even for those individuals, though, the national interest waiver can be a good tool because if you're not ready for an EB1, the national interest waiver can allow you to establish your place in the backlog or the waiting line for the green card um, to help your overall process of emigrating to the U.S. down the road. When we look at a national interest waiver, we really do need to focus on kind of the national interest of the work. It's right there in the name. So we want to make sure that the impact of your work is going to be felt outside of your immediate institution or your immediate geographic area. We really are looking for some level of national impact. A real classic case is a biomedical researcher or somebody in academia, um, but we're not limited to that. Similar to an EB1A, the national interest waiver can be used in a multitude of fields so long as we can show that national benefit to the United States. Finally, um, there was recent guidance um, really emphasizing the importance of STEM education in the United States, and that has been specifically incorporated into the adjudications of national interest waivers. 
So if you are somebody who has an advanced STEM degree, um, that can be a huge positive factor for the National Interest Waiver and make it a really strong alternative to the EB-1. So one thing that I try to tell my clients is that you don't have to seek the hardest category. So if you are eligible for both the EB-1 and the National Interest Waiver, unless there's a reason, so for example, unless, as Ali mentioned, you're an Indian Chinese national who has a potential for a backlog or does have a backlog, it doesn't make sense to always try to get the hardest categories. Um, So you do want to try to go for the low-hanging fruit here and get the category that's going to get you your green card the fastest. Right now, National Interest Waiver does not have premium processing, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people tend to prefer EB-1. But it looks like sometime this fiscal year, they are supposed to start premium processing for the National Interest Waiver. So if again, deciding between the EB-1 and the NIW, if the attorney saying that, hey, the NIW is probably going to be easier, don't think that you have to go for the EB-1 and prove that you're at the top of your field, because regardless, you're still going to get your green card if you go the EB-2 National Interest Waiver route. So any final thoughts from Ali and Nigel about um, tips and tricks for people for the EB-1 category or anything that you wanted to recap? I think one tip is to make sure any work that you're doing to document your achievements are in your name. So be careful trying to use any materials that you know you helped an advisor, uh, let's say for your PhD program or a friend with peer review or anything of that nature. Um, just make sure that it's in your name and it's your documented achievement. That's a great tip. So thank you, Ali and Nigel, for your time today. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Please give us a five-star rating and reviews because it definitely helps people find us. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.